good to be here this evening. I'd like to thank Paul for the prayer on my behalf. It's my prayer, too, that I'll bring something to this congregation that would be edifying, something that you can take in your walk with Christ. You know, speaking of our walk with Christ, that's kind of what I'd like to talk about this evening, uh, mainly about our relationship with, with God and with Christ. You know, it was difficult to nail down. It was difficult to nail down a title because that word "relationship" is—I've uh, never really liked it. I guess, um, but you know, the more I've studied, the more I've looked at God's Word, I've found that that's exactly what we have with God and with Christ, and that is a relationship. <clears throat> Relationship is defined the way in which two or more concepts, object, or people are connected or in a state, or the state of being connected. Also in Galatians 3, verses uh, 26, it says, For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So right there in that verse, it establishes some form of a relationship that Christ's followers have with God and with Christ. It says that we can be sons of God. So tonight I'd like to get a grasp on or get a better understanding of that relationship or, uh, and I'd also like to look at the nature of Christ. What, is, what was Christ like as a man? And we're not going to dive too deep into that. We're really not going to dive very far into this subject. I think that you, know, you can make two or three uh, sermons on this topic. Uh, I think it's a, a pretty simple subject, but at the same time it's, it's, I would say it's probably pretty deep also. You know, in a lot of ways, human beings are defined by their relationships. More than anything else in life, uh, one could argue. Relationships tell us who we are, whose we are, and what's expected of us. Our relationships can define where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. So if we take a look at the relationships we hold, we'll see that those relationships are how really other people define us as well. Those relationships can say more about who we are than really any social profile ever could. We can't go anywhere without acknowledging who we are and who we belong to, right? You know, just this week, I have a, a perfect example, but I was working for a guy who was buying a house in Leveland, and after a few short conversations, he, he learned my name, obviously, and he called me just last Wednesday night again because his uh, inspection was on Thursday, and he said, are you David Pinkerton's son? I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I went to school with Diana. And just based off this short interaction, he knew my name. He knew who my dad was and uh, knew that Diana was my aunt. Well, he told me to say hello. And I said, well, you know, I'm actually, this was at church. I'd stepped out after the services. And I said, well, I'm just a few feet away from him. He said, oh, yeah, y'all are probably at church. It's Wednesday. And... Uh, so just after that short conversation, this guy learned a lot about who was doing this job for him the next day. And then the next day, he continues to ask me, I guess it was after the work was done, but he said, do y'all, or does your dad still live out, out there? And I said, yeah, yeah, he does. And, and he asked questions about Van and Diana, do they still live out there? No, they moved to Plainview, you know, Mark and Andrew live there, and 
it went on and on, and he, it got kind of weird because eventually this guy knew exactly where I lived. And it, it didn't take much conversation at all to, for him to learn these intimate details about my life, I would, I would say. And I never, I've never even seen the guy. I've just talked to him on the phone. And he went on to tell me about his relationships and people he knew, people that I knew as well from, from the Olton community. So in that short interaction with him, he knew a lot about who I was, uh, where I lived, and where I go to church. And it really made me realize how much we can learn about a person just because of the relationships that they hold. The company that we keep is one of the most telling things of who we truly are as a person. And to that point, when it's all said and done, the only relationship that will really define who we are in standing with God is that relationship with God. The standing of that relationship is the only thing, the only relationship really that's going to matter on Judgment Day. So when we think about that relationship, we can see that from the beginning, God established that mankind was special to him. We're told that God made man in his image. You know, man's soul was created, uh, or, or or the one thing that was created in the world that had true value to God. Mankind is the creation that Jesus was willing to die for. The one creation with whom God wants a relationship with, and that's us. And it's because we have a soul. That relationship, though, is on God's terms. Why? Because we are his creation. He's the ownership of our past, our present, and our future. Jeremiah, 11 verses, uh, Jer- Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, the thoughts, the thoughts of peace and not of evil. I give you a future and a hope. Another translation says, I know the plans I have for you. We're probably familiar with that translation. So this is just a glimpse into the divine nature of God and how he views us, his creation. You know, I've been guilty at looking at verses like these and seeing something like that. I know the plans I have for you and thinking, well, you know, that's, you know, people say, well, God has a plan for each and every one of you. And, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at verses like this, sayings like that, and I've really discounted them in my life. It is my belief that God has a plan for each and every one of us tonight. But that plan isn't always carried out. Why? Because us as humans, we're the variable in that relationship with God. When it comes to our relationship, we're the variable. Christ and God are not. They do not change. Just as I said, it has to be, that relationship has to be on his terms, has to be done his way. Otherwise, we cannot fulfill those desires and plans that he has for in our lives. Hebrews 13, verses 8 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unlike our other relationships, our relationship with God does not change on his end. You know, our relationships in our own relationships with, with our family and other, other friends people in our lives, eventually people are going to disappoint us from time to time. We're going to be disappointed. We're going to be hurt by anyone really that we ever have a relationship with. And that is because both of us as humans in that relationships are fallible. Oftentimes humans are unpredictable, but Christ is perfect and unchangeable. You know, people are looking for something or someone that they can count on that's, that's constant in their lives. It's unchanging. 
They long for stability. This morning we talked about, or we, we sang a song about, will your anchor hold? Christ is that anchor. People desire a sense of normalcy in their lives. People are looking for that anchor. People spend a lot of time trying to figure out, or trying to put faith in people and earthly things and are every single time disappointed. Hebrews 13, and also in 13, verse 5 through 6, earlier in that chapter, says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What, what can man do to me? Like I said, people are trusting in people oftentimes leaves us disappointed. Because in our humanness, our incompleteness, we fail one another. Trusting in institutions and human authorities often leaves us wanting. Trusting in our wealth and our own stability leaves us uneasy as well, right? It can be fleeting. But again, there's one entity, one person that never leaves us guessing. And that is Christ because he never changes. Sound like a broken record, but Christ never changes. So we started here in our lesson by establishing that our relationships define who we are, whose we are, and what's expected of us. And I'd like to look at all three of those tonight uh, pretty quickly. But first of all, we'll look at who do we belong to. And we know that that is Jesus. You know, there's a descriptor of Jesus in the Bible that many might not know about. Some of you may uh, and this is the whole reason, really, why I built this lesson. And uh, I think it goes in well with the lesson. We'll see. But uh, in Revelation, Christ is referred to as a lion. And that's, that's pretty different uh, compared to what we're used to hearing. If you want to refer to him as an animal, we, thought of, we think of Christ as a sacrificial lamb of God, right? And up until just about a few months ago, I didn't, I didn't know this either, that Christ was referred to as a lion. But there are other secular authors that paint Christ as a lion and, and paint, paint him as a lion and depict him as that. And uh, if you know what I'm talking about, it's the C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, and it turned into a movie. But uh, I've always really liked that depiction of Christ as a lion because in the book, this lion was bold and mighty, and yet quiet and, um, and gracious. But as I said, oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think of him as, as, a, as a lamb, and we hear him referred to as a lamb pretty often in the Scriptures. In John 1, verses 29, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming into him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So when we think of a lamb, you think of tenderness, right? Gentleness, and I would even add submissiveness. I would say that Christ was all three of these things if, and, and, not more, and much more. His submission was to God when he went to the cross. But there's another description of Christ in the Scripture, and that is in Revelation. It says, uh, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion, of, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to the open book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I don't want to get into all the craziness that is Revelation, but I just want to notice this depiction of Christ here. 
quite opposite of, the, of a lamb in nature. When we think of lion, we think of alpha, boldness, protector, leader, conqueror. And I think it's definitely, though, the Christian world's tendency today to focus on, though, the softer side of Christ. We don't really want to think of Christ as bold, necessary, or a, a, or a leader, or a conqueror. Uh, at least the, the Christian world as a whole, I would say. And, you know, I, I think of that word boldness, and I don't even think that that gives... I don't think it does Christ justice and how he was really as a person when, when he was on this earth. It's definitely not the watered-down version of Christ that a lot of people are used to hearing about. But Christ was God in flesh. He was the Redeemer of the world. So when we consider our relationship with Christ, it's not to be treated as something casual. Not to be treated as something uh, yeah, not to be treated as something uh, casual or something that we can have every now and then. So when we think of Christ, you can't have the tenderness without the boldness. Christ was a leader, but he also submitted to the Father. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. You know, sometimes that truth that Christ gave to his people that he gives to us is hard to hear. It might have sounded harsh, but in his boldness, he presented that truth out of love. So why do I bring all this up? Well, I think it's important, like I said, for us to, if we're going to talk about our relationship with Christ, we got to know, or our connection with Christ, it's important to know who he is. And I believe that a lot of the time people, like I said, really want just this watered-down version of who Christ is, and that's how they base their whole relationship, quote-unquote, with Christ on is this, this, this soft, watered-down version of Christ. But in Christ, his true children are redeemed, but they're humbled and they're chastened. They've been called to be children, but they've also been called to be servants. They've been called to be bold and firm, yet harmless and merciful. Matthew 10, verses 16 through 17 says, Behold, I send you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be ye wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You know, Christ was a master of being harmless and as a dove and wise as a serpent and all these other characteristics that, that we talked about. But again, I want to reiterate, he was as mighty and bold as a lion. So in bringing this up uh, in these details about Christ, I hope that it conveys the message that we, again, we don't need to take this relationship lightly. We need to desire to have a relationship with Christ, not only the Christ that shows grace, but the one who corrects us and rebukes us when we're wrong. Now I'd like to look at the, the importance of our relationship with Christ, an active relationship, a life that seeks Christ. <clears throat> Today, or trying to live a Christian life it, without having a connection or relationship with God really is just morality. And, you know, I was talking to someone just the other day, and, and the dis discussion was, and I, I just genuinely asked him, how do you really give everything to God. When you have a struggle or whatever, how do you give those things over to God? How do you truly give them to God? 
And I know people say stuff like that all the time. Give your problems to God. Hand it over to God. But do we really know what the practical application is of that? Um, and I'm going to take a really long way to get there, but I hope I can answer this question. <clears throat> you know, a lot of the time people want to view Christianity as a set of rules and regulations, a series of do's and don'ts. And that line of thinking really is just a cold, dead set of moral principles. A life lived under that philosophy, if you're trying to be a Christian lived under that philosophy, you're never going to grow as a Christian. You know, I can never grow as a Christian if, uh, let's see, lost my place. You can never grow as a Christian and you'll never find, you'll never grow as a Christian if you live under this philosophy. And you'll find that you continue to struggle with the same problems over and over if all you're trying to do is just be a good person. If that's as deep as our Christianity goes, we're going to find ourselves stuck. If there's not regular consideration and internalization of his word, if there's no fellowship with God, if there's no prayer in our life, if there's no fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're going to find ourselves stuck in the same place that we were 10 years ago. Matthew 15, verses 8 says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, Christ and God is not interested in surface-level worship. We can do all the right things. We can go to church whenever the doors are open, but, you know, if, and we can be a good person, but if that's as ever, that's as ever, that's, if that's as ever deep, if that's as deep as it ever gets, then we're missing the entire point of Christianity. In this verse, in the same chapter, you'll see that Jesus here was actually referring to the Pharisees in verse 1 of this chapter. And they were asking Jesus, why did your disciples not wash their hands before they ate, ate bread? You know, they wanted to act like they were all about following the rules. And I think the Pharisees were the most legalistic group of people you would ever come across. And ultimately, they thought they were trying to act like they were all about following the rules, but ultimately their heart was far from God. Sometimes, you know, we can be just like the Pharisees. And let me preface this by saying that God certainly does not, he does care about us following his commandments. But we cannot isolate the law of God or his commandments from God himself who gave the law to us. And I know this happens because I'm, I'm guilty of doing that. We have the mindset in uh, when we have that mindset, it seems that a person is not so interested in seeking to obey God or glorify God, God or to honor Christ as they are just to obey the rules, A, B, C, and D. And this way of thinking is devoid of any type of relationship with God. There's no love, there's no joy, there's no passion. It's just a robotic form of law-keeping. You know, this way of thinking forgets the broader context of, of God's love and his entire reason for giving us the commandments and his commandments in the first place. Now I want to look at the children of Israel for a moment. And we, we're going to have a fairly lengthy reading, and I don't have it on the, the PowerPoint, so I'd ask you to open to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. You know, I know a lot of the time the Israelites were not... They didn't seem to want to follow the, God's law or have a relationship with him. But in, reading, uh, in this reading, 
I think there's some very important points that, that we need to look at and need to pay attention to. So let's open up to Psalm 78, and we'll read verses 28 through, uh, through 37, I believe. We'll start in verse 28. The children of Ephraim, being armed and, carry, and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works. And his wonders that they had shown to him, marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers. And in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the water stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud. And in the night with the light of fire, he split, he split the rocks of the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned, against, they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck a rock so that waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore, the Lord was furious. So fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger came, against, uh, came up against Israel because they did not believe God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat, and had given them bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwelling. So they ate and were filled, and were well filled, and they gave them their own and he gave them their own desire. They were not depraved, deprived of their craving. But while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them. And he slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. I want to stop right there for a moment. You know, when I was studying this particular passage, I came across uh, a term called externalism. And uh, it's, it's pretty broad. I've not, really ever, I've not really ever heard this used. But in a lot of ways, the Israelites were externalists. Their perception of God and who he was was based on a lot of ex external things that were happening to them. Despite the fact that God had delivered them from Egypt, despite the fact that he took care of them physically, and the problem was always in their heart. They didn't trust in God. And that term externalism is really interesting. And it, like I said, it can be used in a lot of different areas. But as Christians, externalism can be very, very dangerous. And that's because like the Israelites, an externalist perception of life is dictated by their environment. A Christian's view of life cannot, we can't, we know as, as Christians, we can't be, our perception of God and of Christ and our relationship to him cannot be dictated by what's around us, our environment, right? Why? Because our environment is the world and the world is evil. So a Christian on the opposite end needs to internalize Christ, put on Christ, carry God, God's word in his heart. So there's something deeper internally despite 
what may be happening externally to the Christian, right? That's called hope in God. We'll continue to read uh, in Psalm 78, and we'll pick it up in verse 32, and we'll read through 37. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe his wondrous works. Therefore, their days, therefore their days he consumed in futility, and their years in fear. Then he slew them when they sought when they when he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God their redeemer. Nevertheless, though, they flattered them, flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. And I want to try to dissect this, these last few verses this evening. It first says in 32, in spite of this, they still sin. Despite all the blessings and the strongest of punishments, they still sin. They didn't learn from God's goodness. They didn't learn from his wrath. You know, as we go through life, we are all going to experience hardship. We're going to experience different types of losses, whatever that may be. Life is, is really full of loss, but it's also full of blessings, but what happens a lot of the time is we're tempted to identify with the bad things, all the negative things that are happening in our life. We identify ourselves by those losses. And in turn, our lives are lived under that umbrella of all the negative things that have ever happened to us. But what happens is that when we do that, it limits us to see the actual blessings in our lives. And I would argue that it even limits us to receive future blessings. The children of Israel made a statement at one point that they would have been better off staying in the bondage of Egypt than being out in the wilderness. It wasn't in the passages that we read, but they, that was stated at one point. They were identifying by their pain. They couldn't see that God, what God had brought them from. It says there in 32, it says their days were consumed in futility. You know, that generation witnessed God deliver them from slavery in Egypt, yet they were never going to see the promised land. God was saying, I took you out of Egypt from slavery, and for what? You're all going to die out here because of your unfaithfulness. 34, it says, when they slew them, then... They sought him. It took an extreme correction from God, but eventually a generation of people grew and it said they sought God earnestly. But even, it seems, in their pursuit of God, it seems that eventually it turned insincere. What it seems is that, what it seems they were doing is that they were seeking to obey God only to escape from his punishment. Have you ever found yourself simply living to escape from punishment? Just out of fear for not making it to heaven or going to hell? Have you ever just been, like we said, just trying to do, be a good person? Just out of fear? I'll admit it again, I've done, this, I've done that. And again, that type of Christianity, if that's what you want to call it, is devoid of any relationship or internalization of Christ. You know, I found that when I just try to do good, my prayer life is still lacking. 
I'm not taking time to study and meditate on God's Word, and it's a mess every single time. I found this quote, I don't know where it came from, but as I was studying this, I found it. And it says, As iron is very soft and malleable while in the fire, but soon after returns to its former hardness. So many, while afflicted, seem very well affected, but afterwards soon show what they are. You know, there are things in life that will soften our heart. It's possibly an extreme experience or a moment that can get our attention. Possibly it's a life-threatening moment or maybe just a good lesson that got your attention. And from those experiences, we're a lot of times increased with vigor for God, right? We see the issues in our life and we say, I'm going to take charge. It's going to be different this time. I'm going to change. But more times than not, that change is only temporary, sadly. That change is only temporary when the only fuel that we have is really, if, if the only fuel that we have for change is that traumatic experience that happened to us, then it's going to be, we're going to be just like that iron in the fire. First, you pull it off, pull that fire, pull the, the iron out of the fire. It's soft and impressionable, right? But as soon as you pull it out, it begins to harden. Its true nature is revealed once again, right? And I suppose a practical solution or application to this quote would be that as Christians, we need to stay close to the fire, so to speak. You know, I mentioned that we mentioned earlier that the Israelites were externalists and in the example that I just used, if, if we're only affected by when we're put in the fire, so to speak, that traumatic experience, then we're externalists too. We're just going to be affected by any, anything in our environment, anything that happens to us externally. There's no internal change. There's no internal fire. So I would suggest that, to keep this analogy going, that Christians with a true internal relationship with Christ have to have that fire burning inside them. That passion and commitment to Christ has to be burning inside of us. Always soft and impressionable, allowing our lives to be shaped by His Word. Allow ourselves to have fellowship with Him in prayer. That's something that I do not give enough credit in my life, is having fellowship with God. In verse 30. Six, it says, nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. Their seeking of God can only have possibly been, it could have been possibly been sincere, but ultimately was short-lived. Soon, they came to God only with flattering but insincere words. You know, it's strange that man thinks that they can lie to God and deceive him, but how often are we doing the exact same thing with our vain worship and our lip service? Mouth service, mouth worship is detestable to God when it's disassociated from our heart. When there's no relationship, right? So I'll go back to that original question. How do we give our problems to God? And I, I don't know if I answered it very well, but I think it comes down to an internalization of Christ. And it comes down to having that relationship with, with, with Christ and with God. Um, and like I said, it's a, it's a much more deep, it's a deeper subject than we'll ever, that we'll get into tonight. But 
It's an active internalization of God's Word, active fellowship through prayer, a constant daily seeking of Him. And you know, the reason I've wondered this myself is because all too often I've tried to fix my problems by myself, so I didn't know what it meant a lot of the time to give those things to God because I wasn't seeking to draw near to Him in the first place. Lastly, we're going to talk about what's expected of us when it comes to our relationship with Christ. And we'll look at Luke 9, verse 23. It says, And he said, and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, our connection to Christ is not like any relationship that will, any earthly relationship that we'll ever have. Here we see Christ's instruction on how to be a part of him. What does he say? He says, follow me. He did not say, let's, let's be buds, let's be friends, let's, you know. It wasn't this casual thing. It was, and I don't even know how to explain it, but it was, I think it kind of disassociates it from an actual relationship that we're used to thinking about. He wants us to follow him. We're the variable in this relationship. Follow me is much more fitting for Christ because it focuses on denying self, just like he talked about. In order to be a follower, really, of anything, any movement, a person, it's going to take a lot of humility for us to do that. It's going to take a lot of trust to follow any movement, any, anything, any person. It's going to take trust and commitment and humility. And so our relationship with Christ is just that. It's one of humility, one of self-denial, self-sacrifice. When I said earlier uh, that I've always shied away from that term relationship, it's because, you know, without a proper view or attitude of that relationship, people's minds, like we talked about, can become very casual towards Christ and, and just treat him, you know, as a friend or a family member. And he's so much more than that. And Christ in this passage lays out the prerequisites for being really in a relationship with him. What does he say? Deny self. Take up your cross daily. If we take just a casual approach to Christ, then that relationship becomes really individualistic. We only want to focus on, like we talked about, the pleasant things about Christ instead of think of him as that mighty lion, right? The one that was sent to destroy our own sin, but people want to paint Jesus in their own world. They want to create their own definition of who Jesus is, really based off how they choose to live their life. So we'll, we're going to go back again to self-denial or taking up our cross. What does it mean to take up our cross daily? You know, many take that to mean as just a burden in life, whether it's a physical illness or strained relationship or a heartache of any kind that we may have. That's just something I've got to carry through life. That's my burden to bear. Uh, but that's not at all what Christ is referring to here. When Jesus carry, literally carried up his own cross to Golgotha, nobody was thinking of it as, a, as symbolistic to a burden to carry. To a person in the first century church, the cross meant one thing and one thing only, and that was death, your own death. And in that time, carrying a cross meant carrying the tool of your own physical destruction, while also being ridiculed along the way, just like Christ was. 
So in that lot, in that lot bearing your cross really means willing to die for Christ. Willing to die in order to follow Jesus. It means dying to self, right? And really, any time that Christ talks about bearing a cross-bearing, he also talks about this. And this is in verse 24. I don't have it on the board, but in verse 24 of this same chapter, he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Anytime cross, or Jesus mentions cross-bearing, like I said, he mentions something to this effect. Jesus' call here was a call to absolute surrender to him. And he posed this question many times in Scripture, but I'm going to ask each and every one of us today, are we willing to answer that call of self-sacrifice, self-denial? You know, wherever he went, Jesus drew crowds. And these large groups often followed him and recognized him as the Messiah. But the problem was is their view of the Messiah was really in, in their own minds what they thought he was going to do. And that view was distorted a lot of the times. They thought Christ was going to usher in an earthly kingdom. They thought possibly that he would free them from the Romans just as God had freed them from Egypt. And even in his own inner circle, a lot of them had to be corrected in thinking that an earthly kingdom was coming. Luke 9, verse 21 through 22 uh, says, And he strictly warned and commanded that them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And so stuff like this kind of flies right in the face of what, what a lot of these people were thinking was going to happen. Son of God is going to be killed by the chief priests and scribes. These are the people he's supposed to overthrow. These are the people he's supposed to humble, right? And so things like this, when Christ brought stuff up like this, his popularity sank. And that's because people were, were looking for an earthly kingdom. Many people who originally followed him rejected him. They were, not really, they were not able to deny their own ideas about Christ. Just like we talked about earlier. People's own version of Christ. They, they want their own version of Christ. Their palatable version of Christ. You know, many people in the Christian world reject, like we said, reject the real Christ in order to, fit, in order to find a version of Christ that fits their own lifestyle, Right? They don't want to think of Christ as that bold line that's going to rebuke them when, when they're wrong. Mark 10, verses 17 through 22 says, Now as he was going out on the road, he came, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, teach her all these things I've kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and take up your cross and follow me. 
But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, uh, this passage is always, anytime we read a lot, but it always provokes me. I don't know if that's a good word or not, but it, uh, you know, this man was given an ultimatum and a pretty tough one at that. Christ said, You have many possessions. He said, I want you to sell all of those things and give to the poor. And then, you're going to have treasure in heaven. And the man went away sorrowful. He couldn't do it. You know, this rich young ruler thought he was willing to follow Christ. But Christ, we know, knew his heart. And we see many other instances where people seem to be willing to follow Christ, but ultimately their commitment was half-hearted at best. They failed to count the cost of discipleship, of that true relationship with Christ, that being of denying self and self-sacrifice. We mentioned earlier that you cannot be a child without also being his servant. And I'll ask you again, do we want Christ bad enough? Do we want him worse than the rich young ruler did? I've often looked at this passion and wondered if I were faced with that same ultimatum, what would be my answer? Everything that you've ever worked for, I want you to leave this all behind and follow me. That's what Christ is saying. And can each of us tonight honestly say that we'd be willing to do that? Are we willing? Have we counted the true cost of being a disciple of Christ? And people could say, well, that's just hypothetical. He's not asking us to do that today. He hasn't told us to sell all of our possessions. And really, my answer to that is it doesn't matter. (laughs) If we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to surrender everything to Christ, we haven't counted the cost. Luke 9 verses 57 through 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said unto him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Then he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And he said unto him, Let the bed bury their own let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go bid them farewell here at my house, who are at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No one, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here are three people that seem to be willing to follow Christ. But none of these people were willing, really, to, defy, to deny their own interests and their own errands for Christ. Following Jesus is really easy when things are going smoothly and when it's not an inconvenience to do so. So our true commitment to Christ really is going to be revealed during the trials or when it's not convenient, when it's not easy. That's when our true commitment is going to be revealed to Christ. I apologize for my slides. It might be better up here. Yeah, it is. Are we willing to follow Jesus if it sometimes means, if it sometimes m- means that we're going to lose friends? 
Are we willing to, G- to follow Jesus if it means alienation from our own family? How about if it means loss of our reputation or our job or our earthly possessions? What if it even means losing our life for Christ? And you know, some places in the world, these consequences are reality. And not, there are some people in this room that have been faced with these exact same dilemmas. And you know, I know no one has been asked to sell all of their possessions. But the question is, are you willing? And really, the only problem with the rich young ruler is that he struggled with covetousness. And Christ's solution to it was to get rid of it all. But he wasn't willing to count the cost. And that's the question tonight. Are you willing? You know, following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that all these things are going to happen to us. Uh, But if it ever comes to that point, if we're ever faced with that choice, the Jesus, Jesus or the comforts of this world... Which one are we going to choose? Commitment to Christ means taking up your cross, giving your hopes, your dreams, your passions, even your very life, if need be, for the cause of Christ. That's all I have prepared this evening. If there's one that needs the prayers of the church, there's one that's been taught and wants to be baptized, obey their Lord in baptism, we ask that either one would come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.